these findings actually suggest indirectly that there might be different mechanisms in the etiology and pathophysiology of shoulder tendinosis. And so I think it makes sense to still diagnose uh, calcifying tendinitis. Welcome to the HAP MNR Journal Club, a podcast where we introduce you to thought leaders who are published in the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This is a show about practices, research, and education that are shaping the field of physiatry in inspiring ways. The Journal Club is brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists, or AAP, an intimate and influential professional society that brings together leading minds at every career level. Physiatrists and professors, directors and med students, researchers and residents, this is your behind-the-scenes look at people and ideas that will influence your future. Your host is Dr. Eric Wasatsky, an AAP member with Georgetown University School of Medicine. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Eric Wasatsky coming to you from the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington, D.C. I'm thrilled to be joined by my co-host today, uh, Dr. Matt Maxwell, uh, one of our faculty members here, who is also the brand-new director of our Sports Medicine Fellowship Program. Uh, Dr. Maxwell, thanks for joining me as my co-host. Dr. Wasatsky, thanks so much for this opportunity to be with you today. Wonderful. So uh, we are very excited to have a very special guest to interview today, Dr. Gerald Abenbickler, uh, who's joining us from Vienna, Austria. He works at the Department of Physical Medicine, Rehabilitation, and Occupational Medicine at the Medical University of Vienna. So, Dr. Abenbickler, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. You know, I wanted to ask you a question about Austria, but I didn't know what to ask you. Uh, you know, my wife, who is a musician, told me I should ask you if you're a big fan of Mozart, since he hails from there. Actually, I am, and I attended an opera yesterday evening. Oh, wonderful. It was what did you... an open-air performance, and it started raining, so <laughs> they had to interrupt it. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later today about how you like to enjoy yourself, so that's a good segue. I appreciate <laughs> that. But getting down to business, uh, we brought you on our show today to chat with you about a recently published study. Uh, it is titled, Long-Term Course of Shoulders After Ultrasound Therapy for Calcific Tendinitis, Results of the 10 Years Follow-Up of an RCT. Uh, I do want to mention that the study was awarded with the APMNR uh, President's Citation Award in 2016. And Dr. Aben Bickler is uh, quite accomplished, uh, previously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we're excited to talk to you and excited to talk to you about this study. Uh, and we were wondering if you could start by uh, kind of giving us a brief summary of your findings in this most recently published study. Well, as you already mentioned with the title, this study followed the structure and function-related long-term course of shoulders that had been treated with therapeutic ultrasound or uh, for symptomatic calcific tendinitis. Of particular interest uh, in this long-term follow-up examination was to observe the long-term course of the clinical problem and the sustainability of treatment effects that had been observed nine months after ultrasound therapy had ended in order to better understand the nature of the problem. We therefore invited those patients who had been treated either with verum ultrasound or sham ultrasound in the original study and for whom a follow-up examination 
nine months after the end of treatment was available. The assessments at 10 years comprised of standardized X-ray imaging in the anterior, postural, lateral, and outlet views. The clinical assessment was performed by two residents who had not been involved in the original trial and were unaware of the previous treatment groups. They examined shoulder complaints using a symptom score proposed by Binder that we had already in the original study and shoulder function using the constant score. The Binder symptom score measures the severity of subjective symptoms, including pain, pain and resisted shoulder movement, and the best score is zero and the worst possible score is 52. The constant score measures shoulder health-related function and assesses the degree of pain, activities of daily uh, living, and the active range of motion and strength in the shoulder uh, abductor muscles. The worst possible score is zero, and the best score is 100. It's noteworthy to say that the x-rays were analyzed in a blinded way by two radiologists that had been independent from each other. For the statistic procedures, we compared the main outcome variables of the two original treatment groups in a pair protocol analysis. For the resorption of the calcium deposits and changes in shoulder symptoms or function between baseline and 10 years follow-up, as well as between the 9 months and the 10 years follow-up, uh, we did our statistical testing. As in the original study, we used fissures or X-square test to assess the resorption of the calcium deposits on radiographic findings, which was actually our primary outcome measure in the original study, and for the clinical outcome measures, uh, we had two-tailed t-tests. We also did correlation analysis in order to assess for any associations between the calcium deposits and shoulder function or shoulder symptoms. We further calculated univariate logistic regression models in order to identify potential prognostic factors for an impaired shoulder function. And we only had few uh, factors. It was age, body mass index, uh, regular sports activities, and the availability of Verum or Shen therapy. And the constant score of equal or less than 95 was defined as being abnormal. For the results, at the 10 years follow-up, about 80% of the calcium deposits had resolved in both the original ultrasound-treated and in the original sham-treated shoulders. While 10 years after ultrasound treatment, no between-group differences in the calcium resorptions were observed, a higher proportion of calcium deposits was deemed completely resolved at the nine-month follow-up in those shoulders that had been originally treated with varum ultrasound. When compared to baseline, shoulder symptoms and function had significantly improved at both the 10 years and the nine-month follow-up examinations, and there were no differences between the two groups. At the 10 years follow-up, a normal constant score was found in more than 70% of the shoulders with no significant differences between groups. There was neither a clinically meaningful association between a pathological acromiohumoral distance and the individual's reported complaints, nor between the presence of a calcification in the shoulder and shoulder function or shoulder complaints. 
among the few prognostic variables that we had assessed, a regular sports performance at baseline predicted a favorable long-term outcome. So this is about what we did and which results we have received. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that summary. Uh, one thing I noticed in reviewing your results, it seemed to me that more patients that were in the sham ultrasound group seemed to drop out over time than those who were treated with the true ultrasound. Uh, do you feel that that could have affected the results in any way? First of all, in fact, there were clearly few observations at the 10 years follow-up examination in the previously uh, treated sham ultrasound group than in the Verum ultrasound group. It was 18 versus 27, I think. In this study, we only invited those patients who had fully completed the treatment protocol with ultrasound or sham ultrasound therapy and for whom a nine-month follow-up examination was available. In fact, in our original trial, there were more dropouts in the sham-treated group than in the verum-treated group. However, if we look at the proportions of those patients or treated shoulders that had been enrolled in the original study, and that were invited for a long-term follow-up, similar ratios of about 80% for the long-term follow-up were uh, available. In this regard, I need to say, and I think I've already mentioned it before, that the original study had not been intended to prove the efficacy of therapeutic ultrasound over sham ultrasound in the long term. Thus, any effects that might have been observed by the comparisons between the two groups would need to be considered as being explorative in nature rather than being conclusive. And this is very important. Thus, the selection bias should not be a major issue for the long-term follow-up. For our retrospective analysis at the nine-month follow-up examination, selection bias appears to me to be also uh, of minor relevance as the original study had already demonstrated efficacy for therapeutic ultrasound in the resorption of calcium deposits. Our retrospective between groups analysis that we had done at the nine-month follow-up confirmed actually our previous results. However, we had fewer cases in this comparison as we had in the original study. Well, thank you for that explanation. I will pass the mic to Dr. Maxwell for our next few questions. I found it very interesting, uh, your ability to follow up such a long period of time after your original study. Uh, so to follow up on that dropout rate, uh, specifically, what were the technical considerations and hurdles that you faced in organizing that 10-year follow-up? Well, this is a, is a very important question, and thank you for that. Well, our main motivation to do this follow-up was driven by our curiosity in order to identify whether there would be any long-term effects of therapeutic ultrasound over sham ultrasound in the resorption of calcium deposits and how these uh, would relate to shoulder function and shoulder complaints. As the original study had not been intended, and I've already said this before, uh, to prove the efficacy of therapeutic ultrasound over sham ultrasound in the long term, the most important and uh, most relevant technical consideration was that any findings would have to be considered as being explorative in nature. This means that from any between-group differences that we would observe in our analysis no causal conclusions on long-term effects of therapeutic ultrasound over sham ultrasound over time, over the time span of 10 years or a decade, uh, could be drawn. And if so, 
this might be problematic and even misleading. But nevertheless, the strength of our long-term follow-up was that we would be able to shed light on the likelihood of recovery, risk of relapse, and eventually on secondary prevention of the cohort that is at risk than on the sustainability of the results that we observed at the nine-month follow-up. In addition, this long-term follow-up would allow us to investigate for any correlation between calcium deposit and shoulder complaints or, the, or shoulder functions. So among the biggest hurdles we had were, of course, we already had a relatively small sample size, and we needed to reach as many patients as possible that we planned to invite for our long-term follow-up examination. So we had to undertake a lot of effort in order to reestablish contact. Another relevant hurdle was of how to deal with those patients who might have had further therapies for calcific tendinitis or tendinosis, especially if they had surgery in the meantime or other minimal invasive therapies like needling aspiration or other interventions. However, we, we observed that actually this was not a major problem. About 15 to 17% had further therapies and there was no difference between the two groups. Interesting. So given the changes in the diagnostic evaluation uh, and increasing utilization of diagnostic ultrasound over the last decade or so, would you change your initial evaluation algorithm or your inclusion or exclusion criteria of the original cohort of these patients? This is a tricky but important question. A uh, very simple answer probably is not possible, at least for me. Well, the role of diagnostic ultrasound has a special value in identifying any impairments in the structural integrity of the soft tissues of the shoulder and, uh, of course, for other soft tissues as well, like the rotator cuff. You can also observe uh, inflammatory uh, effusions into the joint, uh, fascia changes, and other structural changes, for instance, in the labrum. And it may also be used to identify the location of calcification. However, X-ray imaging is, in my opinion, still superior to ultrasound if calcifications or impairments of bony structures have to be diagnosed. And despite our findings that there was no association, correlation between the calcification and shoulder function or shoulder complaints, recent research seems to suggest that it is uh, still of relevance to do an x-ray and to, to identify a calcification or calcium deposit on x-ray. Findings from a meta-analysis and individual randomized controlled trials that investigated the efficacy of shockwave therapy administered to painful shoulders that had been diagnosed with tendinitis of the shoulder suggest that shockwave therapy seems not superior to sham therapy in the case of a non-calcifying tendinosis or tendinitis of the shoulder. However, if you administer shockwave therapy, focused or radial shockwave therapy to a painful shoulder with uh, calcific tendinitis, there seems to be impressive uh, superiority of shockwave therapy over sham shockwave therapy in treating this condition. So these findings actually suggest indirectly that there might 
be different mechanisms in the etiology and pathophysiology of shoulder tendinosis. And so I think it makes sense to still diagnose uh, calcifying tendinitis. Other observations from my personal experience, I want to tell you that I observed once a mother. She was in her late 60s, and her daughter, who was about 40 to 45 years of age, both had similar clinical findings, similar findings on uh, sonography, and both had at this, almost the same location and probably the same size, a calcium deposit uh, in the supraspinatus tendon. And interestingly, I treated both with the same uh, therapy, and the mother was a terrific responder, whereas the daughter was not. So there seem to be other issues that might actually contribute to the success of a therapy that we do not know yet, considering actually that the pathophysiology and the etiology of Calcific tendinitis is not fully understood. There are some theories and hypotheses about it. In my opinion, I think it's worthwhile uh, doing uh, structural uh, assessments of the shoulders and in addition to the calcification. So whether or not this would have changed my evaluation process, I'm not sure right now. We had definitely... Uh, uh, exclusion criteria, which were mainly uh, rheumatic diseases in the original trial, and I would do this again. What I would actually change with a, a new study, in spite of these novel findings we have, is that I would probably put function in the first range, and observing the resorption of calcium deposits would be in the second place. Thank you for that. I really appreciate you using that personal antidote about the patients you've seen is really helpful. And, uh, you know, for our residents here who just love using ultrasound, their hearts are going to be broken about you uh, stating superiority of x-ray over ultrasound, but it's certainly an important thing to discuss, and we appreciate that. Dr. Maxwell, why don't we move towards our wrap-up question? Okay. Uh, given all of the nuances that you've highlighted here today and the findings of, of your several related studies with this cohort, how have the findings influenced your approach to the treatment and evaluation of calcific tendinitis when it comes to your daily clinical practice? Well, actually, it mainly influences uh, my explanation to the patients about the prognosis of calcific tendinitis. With respect to my clinical workup, it does not change uh, a lot. Uh, I usually do a, a, a very thorough clinical examination, taking the history, looking at or examining the shoulder, doing stress tests, looking for any disorders that I might figure out, and especially always look at the neck and do a close examination of the neck as well. If I have the suspicion of rupture of the tendons or other impairments, I order sonography or also do x-rays. With respect to therapies, especially uh, in spite of the novel findings that actually found that the increasing number of shoulder surgeries actually seem to have a very strong placebo effect, we, of course, try now to optimize our non-operative uh, treatment schedules. We have a great variety of different uh, options to offer. If somebody is not in pain and has 
time, we still offer therapeutic ultrasound. However, this treatment protocol takes eight to nine weeks. We offer shockwave therapy. We also uh, offer trineedling infiltrations with glucosteroids and other options. So this has actually been negotiated to the patients, and from my personal opinion, we have only very few treatment failures. We usually, on a regular basis, also want to have the patients to do some actually to learn some bodily exercises in order to optimize neuromuscular function and coordination in the rotator cuff and the whole shoulder muscles and also in the neck. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing your approach to this uh, really important issue. Uh, so that's all we wanted to ask you about the study. We did want to switch gears with a little bit of a bonus question on a different topic. So, you know, one thing that's on our minds a lot here uh, in the United States nowadays, and I'm, I'm curious about uh, if this is being discussed in Austria, is the issue of physician burnout. A lot of concern about physicians being overworked, fatigued, maybe even depressed, and uh, even, you know, some concerns and reports about suicide uh, in the physician population, especially amongst trainees. Uh, so there is more of a push nowadays towards this concept of wellness for physicians taking care of ourselves and I'm just curious about your perspective on that, uh, how you and your daily work life in Austria manage work-related stress and uh, what you like to do outside of work to help yourself relax and recharge your battery. Thank you for this question. I think this is a very, a very, very important one. And in fact, especially the work-related stress, in my case, especially with administration procedures, so that the hospital administration wants you to be your own secretary as well and to do all the writing and uh, whatever. So it has uh, dramatically increased in the past years. And, of course, there is always a lack of money, so staffing is not increased uh, in an adequate way. So at work, I try to set priorities. For instance, I have no cell phone. During working hours, I only have a, a pager, beeper, that if there is uh, somebody calling me, I can call back and try to reach this person. Number two, sometimes, and this is, I think, very important, uh, especially if uh, it's related to the, the administration you have to do, there are certain limits, and you should not be shy in order to articulate this however, in an adequate way, and if unheard or not adequately dealt with, you should not be shy also to provoke a conflict in order to discuss these issues. On a private basis with respect to recharging my batteries, I want to mention first my family life. This is happy and I think this is a very strong source, family and meeting with friends, doing things together. So, speaking about things. This is one thing, of course, I'm Active, I do a lot of jogging, uh, mountain climbing, ski touring in the winter, and once a week, sometimes even twice a week, especially during the winter time, I attend the sauna. Well, I like to read books. I like to attend the theater. Sometimes I go to a concert or to an opera. So, actually, work is important. Work is, for me, very often fun. But you should also always be aware of the fact there is something in addition to work, to your work life. And, well, that's it. 
That's perfect. I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to some of the administrative uh, frustrations uh, and other issues that uh, challenge us during our day. So we really appreciate and relate to that perspective. And it sounds like you have lots of fun things to do there in Austria. So Dr. Maxwell and I certainly would love to come visit sometime and do some uh, hiking with you out there at some point. It would be wonderful. Absolutely. Well, it would be actually my pleasure to meet with you someday in Vienna. Wonderful. Did you have any uh, last words before we wrap up, Dr. Eben Bickler? Well, thank you very much for this interview. It was great. It was my first experience and all my best and hope to see you at the AAPMR conference. Oh, we hope to see you there as well. Yeah, I, or I, I, at the yeah. AAP conference in Puerto Rico. Wonderful. Yes, we plan to be there. It would be great to meet you. Uh, we really thank you for joining us. Uh, for our listeners, please open up your April edition of the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehab to uh, check out this study in more detail. Thank you all for listening. Uh, on behalf of Dr. Maxwell and myself, uh, thanks for joining our podcast, and please tune in for our next one. <laughs>